The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The title of our sermon this morning, His Perfect Providence, Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. We're going to be looking particularly at Romans chapter 8, verse 28 this morning as we work through this text over the next several weeks. Uh, This morning now, in our verse-by-verse study of Paul's epistle to the church at Rome, we arrive at a a very familiar and often a favored text among God's people, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. It's a wonderful text, a wonderful promise. It's a, a stunning promise and stunning in as much as we understand and embrace through faith that our God, the God that we serve, is a God who works all things after the counsel of his own will. It's a precious promise to us when we consider that our God is sovereign over all things whatsoever that come to pass. And it's in that way that we can trust him when he says he's working all things together for our good. It's a dear promise. It's a cherished promise to God's people, that even when we faced our darkest hour, when you're in your toughest trial, when you're at your most difficult moment, we serve a God who is not only for us, not only seeks to bless us, doesn't only love us, but surely and certainly and actively is working every aspect of that difficult trial to our eventual and our ultimate good. We can trust it. Take it to the bank. Our God is faithful to his word. Now, we've reminded ourselves many times now in our work through Romans 8 that Paul's point or Paul's purpose here through this text of scripture is to encourage the believer. His point is to assure the one who has been justified through faith alone in Christ alone that these blessings are are ours in Christ, that we have been reconciled to God, that we have peace with God, and that all of these blessings flow to us, flow to the believer through their justification by faith. Let me ask you now, as we've been working through the text so far, are you encouraged? (laughs) Are you assured? Then Paul has accomplished his point, right? His point is to assure believers, to encourage us that though salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any works of your own, these blessings are assuredly ours in him. Through the means or through the instrumentality of faith alone, again, entirely from any work of our own, God has justified the sinner, through the person and work of his only begotten son. And he has demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Through the substitutionary sacrifice of his own son, God has reconciled himself, or reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and we now have peace with God. It's from that blessed status as justified in the sight of God, that now the manifold blessings of the gospel are all poured out on the believer. Just a few of those mentioned now in Romans chapter 8. Begins in verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in union with Christ Jesus. What we could not do, what the law could not do, God did by sending his only begotten son. He condemned sin in the flesh. 
And having sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to die for us, he sends forth his own spirit then into our hearts, the living God dwelling within us by his spirit, by which we may call upon God as our heavenly father and by which we may know that we are now children of God. And if children, brothers and sisters, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. And if the spirit of God dwells in you, which he does, if you are in Christ, if the spirit of God dwells in you, the very spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, then that spirit, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will certainly, absolutely, will assuredly give life to your mortal body through his spirit who dwells in you. There will certainly be suffering in the Christian life. Certainly be suffering. There'll certainly be trials and tribulations. It is with much tribulation that we must enter the kingdom of heaven. We will only be glorified together with Christ if we suffer together with Christ. But rest assured, brother, be encouraged, sister. The suffering of this present time, those sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And in our groaning, in our weakness, the Spirit himself, the Spirit who indwells us, the Spirit himself is there to help us, to strengthen us, interceding for us. He himself, our guarantee. He himself, a pledge, the pledge from God himself that he will preserve us to the end as we eagerly await our adoption, the redemption of our body, our inheritance, and the revealing of the sons of God. And not only, brothers and sisters, do we have his spirit dwelling within us to help us, us, to strengthen us in our weakness, we have the assurance, we have the assurance of knowing this we know, that our omnipotent God, our omniscient God, our omnisapient God, the one who is sovereign over all things whatsoever that come to pass, he himself, according to his perfect providence, is working all things together for our good. It's a blessing. These are blessings of indescribable magnitude, right? Of indescribable value. They are of eternal significance. And I'm, I want to submit to you, there, there, is, there is a lifetime of glorious theology that is packed in the next verses, the next three verses in particular. Uh, glo- there is a... Uh, a lifetime ministry of sermons <laughs> contained in the next few verses uh, that are just such a blessing to God's people. Now, we're going to simply consider an overview. of. Having said that, <laughs> what we're going to get into over the next several weeks is just an overview of these verses that follow. That's all we really have time for on a Sunday morning. But I want to commend that once we go through an overview of these vo- verses, it provides really a foundation for us as we continue, continue to study God's word through our Christian lives. Over the years, when I first, when the Lord first saved me, I began my Bible study in the book of Romans. And coming to chapter 8 in particular, and these verses in particular, it just lays the foundation for what should be in the Christian life, a lifetime of study, a lifetime of meditation on these glorious truths and how the Lord works through them for our benefit, for our blessing. So we're going to continue, consider simply an overview of each of those. And I pray this is going to motivate you to a deeper understanding as you grow in your knowledge of the Lord in the years to come. Now we're going to begin by considering two points from verse 28. Two points from verse 28. First, the identity of the blessed. Second, the content of the blessing. 
the identity of the blessed and the content of the blessing. First, the identity of the blessed. Who are those who enjoy the blessedness of this precious promise? Who exactly are those who love God? Who are those who are the called according to his purpose? Second, we're going to consider the content of the blessing. What is it exactly that God does for them? In what way specifically are they blessed? The first really describes who are God's people. Uh, They are described as those who love him, those who are the called. The second describes what God has done for them, what God is doing for them. He has called them according to his own purpose. Now, this clearly isn't speaking of all men. Our text, not speaking of all men, because all things don't ultimately work for good for all men. If you've not turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, then all things will eventually and ultimately culminate in your damnation. They don't work out for your good. If you reject the Lord Jesus Christ, then things don't work out for good toward you. And second, this isn't even speaking of all those who respond favorably to the gospel. There are many who respond favorably to the gospel who fall away. Many who say they profess to love God, but through their disobedience or through their works, they deny him. John chapter 14, verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. Now the blessing here is for those who truly love God. The blessing is for those who are the called ones of God according to his purpose. And we're going to look at the identity of the blessed now, beginning in verse 28. Verse 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now, Paul speaks plainly in verse 28 of believers, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, those who have been justified through the instrumentality of faith. We know that this is true from the two descriptions that are provided for them or provided of them in the text, namely that these are they who love God and that they are those who are the called according to his purpose. Two characteristic marks of the genuine believer. Now first, it is the believer alone who can truly be described as one who loves God. And that love made manifest in obedience. That love made manifest in devotion. In other words, that's a love that bears fruit. It's a love that is made manifest in a love for his word, uh, in a love for his people, in their concern for the lost. That love is made manifest in devotion. It is the unbeliever alone who is characterized by a hatred for God. And there really is no room for a middle ground. You either love God according to the scriptures or you hate God according to the scriptures. Turn with me to Romans 28, Romans 1, not 28 chapters in Romans. That would be awesome. (laughs) Romans chapter 1, and look at verse 28. Unbelievers are described in the passage in verse 28 as those who do not like to retain God in their knowledge. They're not interested in knowing God. They're not interested in learning of him and retaining him in their knowledge. And the unbeliever, verse 28, is one whom God has given over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Now listen to this description of the unbeliever. Verse 29, they're filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, 
wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. How is hatred How is hatred for God made manifest? Hatred for God is made manifest through this list of sinful characteristics, including children being disobedient to parents, including you adults being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, right? They are, verse 31, undiscerning. Undiscerning because they don't know the word of God. Untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, they not only do the same, they approve of those who practice them. Referring to their affections, Paul describes them as haters of God. And no matter their objections to that fact, no matter some some self-proclaimed indifference toward God, it cannot be anything but Hatred that ultimately motivates their rejection of Jesus Christ. It can't be anything but hatred. And that's what distinguishes the one who hates God from the believer. Spurgeon said this. Listen to Spurgeon's words here. The unbeliever has displayed an intense venom against God. For observe how it is. He must either receive the mercy of God in Christ or he must be condemned. There is no other alternative. He must trust Christ, whom God has set forth to be the propitiation for sin, or else he must be driven from the presence of God into eternal punishment. The unbeliever, in effect, says, I had sooner rather be damned than I would accept God's mercy in Christ. That's what the unbeliever is saying. I'd rather be damned than submit myself to that one. We can conceive, he says, uh, we can't conceive a grosser, insult to the infinite compassion of the great father. Suppose a man has injured another, grossly insulted him, and that repeatedly, repeatedly, and yet the injured person, finding the man at last brought into a wretched and miserable state, he goes to him and simply out of kindness says to him, I freely forgive you all the wrong that you ever did to me. And I am ready to relieve your poverty and to succor you in your distress. And suppose the other then replies, no, I would sooner rot than take anything from you. Would you not have in such a resolve, a clear proof of the intense enmity that existed in his heart? And so when a man says, and every one of you unbelievers has practically said so, I would sooner lie forever in hell than honor Christ by trusting him. This is a very plain proof of your hatred of God and of his Christ. Unbelievers hate God. No matter what you say, no matter what you think, that's the reality of it. And that's the way that God sees it. That's the way the scriptures see it. If you've persisted here in unbelief for any length of time, why is it that you hate him? If you've persisted here in unbelief for any length of time, why is it that you hate him? He gives you all good things to enjoy. The clothes on your back, the air in your lungs, the food on your table, the roof over your head. He's been patient with you. He's been gracious with you in preaching the gospel to you week in and week out. It's that goodness that should lead you to repentance, but in all honesty, it's that goodness that you despise. You despise the riches of his goodness. That's Romans chapter two. You've despised, you've shown contempt 
for his forbearance, for his patience. And in the hardness of your heart, you're merely treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath. Lay down the weapons of your warfare. Lay down your arms, so to speak. Abandon yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is gracious and he is good. Turn from your sin and trust in him. In stark contrast, stark contrast, believers are distinctively and exclusively marked by their love for God. The scriptures are even clear that the reason we love God is because he first loved us. Impossible for us to love God unless he first loved us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. God himself authoring and cultivating that affection within us. So it is believers then, those who have been justified through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is believers then who love God. Believers are the subjects of the blessing in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. A second, second, it is the believer alone in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, who may also be identified with the called. Believers are those who are the called according to his purpose. Now, regarding the identity of this group, notice two points in context, in the context of verse 28. First, the word called is articular. It is preceded by the definite article, the. Paul does not say, he does not say that all things work together for good to those who are called. He doesn't say that. Paul says all things work together for good to those who are literally the called ones. The called ones. Second, notice that they are the called ones according to his purpose. According to his purpose. That purpose clearly explained in the verses that follow. Verse 28, they are the called because, verse 29, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. They are called because God has foreknown them and God has predestined them. He has purposed them to be conformed into the image of his son that he, his son, might be the firstborn among many brethren, among many sons brought to glory. Moreover, verse 30, in an unbreakable chain, those whom he predestined, these he also called. Those whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. That group of called ones, literally the called ones in verse 28, are those who have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in verse 29. They are the called according to God's purpose. They're called according to his purpose purpose. That purpose, which originates in God's foreknowledge, not merely looking down the corridor of time to see who may choose him, but according to his own purpose, he calls them. That's according to his foreknowledge. That purpose, which eventuates in their conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that purpose, which eventually terminates upon their glorification with Christ at the end of the age. This is a group of called ones. They have been called by God. And they have been called by God according to his decreed purpose. Now, not so incidentally, the scriptures tell us that the decree, this decreed promise or purpose was established in eternity. In eternity. And think with me for a moment about that. Before the foundation of the world, before anything exists that now exists, before you have ever done one thing, good or bad, 
God predestined a group of called ones, a group that he called to himself, a group that he would conform into the image of his own son, and a group that he would glorify together with the Lord Jesus Christ. We know this from several texts in scripture. Let me give you a couple of examples. The first, Ephesians chapter one. In verse four, Paul says, just as he chose us in him, in Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. In other words, that we should be holy like his son. We should be accepted, as it were, in the beloved. Having, verse five, predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to that prayer you're going to pray on June 13th when you were eight years old. No, according to the good pleasure of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which grace he made us accepted in the beloved. Another example of that is 2 Timothy chapter 1. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1 with me. 2 Timothy chapter 1. And look there beginning at verse 8. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Paul says, Therefore, in light of all this, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. God, verse 9, who has saved us and called us. This is this calling again. Us, this group of called ones. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, not according to anything we've done, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. There was, Christ, there was grace measured out, as it were, for this group of called ones before time even began. Verse 10 but has now been revealed, that grace has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Amazing, right? This is the question then. These things are true, and they are. The question then is this. Who made this group of called ones different from all of those who are called? We preach the gospel here, and we believe that uh, we should be uh, making disciples, that every Christian, every Christian is a testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ, is to proclaim the gospel to the lost. You're going to preach the gospel to people who will not be ultimately saved, and you may preach the gospel to people that the Lord is pleased to save, to reconcile to himself. What makes them differ from one another? What makes you different? Why is it that you, at some point along the way, heard the gospel and received the gospel with joy? Uh, what makes you different? Why is it that you turned from your sin to put faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Is it because you're smarter than all those who didn't receive the gospel in the same way? Uh, is it because you're better or more righteous than that? Why isn't that the case? You've done the righteous thing. They've done the unrighteous thing. You can see how that would be a work. Can you? Who makes you to differ? God makes you to differ. It's the Lord who makes you to differ. Who makes you to differ from another? The Lord makes you to differ. The gospel goes out indiscriminately to all people. The Lord commands all those who would be his followers, he commands them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Mark chapter 16, verse 15. 
This is the general call to salvation. It is the general call of the gospel for all men everywhere to repent and to believe in the gospel. However, there's a problem, a pervasive problem that lies within the heart of man. It's a problem of sin so severe that it renders men incapable of turning on their own. It renders men incapable. Jesus Christ describes that problem in John chapter 6, verse 44. In his own words, listen, no one can come to me. The, Lord, the words of the Lord, no one can come to me. They are incapable unless the Father who sent me draws him, calls him. Do you see? John chapter 6, verse 65. No one can come to me. No one. They are incapable unless it has been granted to him by my Father. I don't know how we could misunderstand those, those verses, right? Crystal clear in what the Lord is saying. No one can. Say what you will about free will. Do you act freely? Yes, you do. But your freedom, so to speak, we were talking about it this morning, your freedom is in bondage to a sinful nature. You're going to act in accord with your nature. You can act freely and you're held responsible for your free actions, your free decisions. You can act freely, but your freedom, your will, so to speak, is in bondage to a sin nature. You are dead in sins and trespasses. No one can come to me, the Lord says. They are incapable unless it has been granted to him by my Father. In similar terms, unless the Father calls them. There is a general call of the gospel that goes out to all men indiscriminately, but for us to be saved, it takes an effectual, a wonder-working call of God himself, so to speak, by which he draws us to himself, by which he changes the heart, by which he changes our affections, an effectual call by which he raises us from death and sin to new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is this call of God which is necessary to make the incapable capable. This call is necessary. It is this call of God which is necessary to make us, make us even capable of genuine saving faith. We are incapable of turning to him in faith, incapable apart from his work. There are many texts in the Bible that help us to understand this doctrine. Let's consider two of them briefly. Turn with me to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. Consider two texts with you with respect to this call. The implications of this are staggering. And I think we're going to understand that more and more fully as we work through the end of chapter 8, into chapter 9, into chapter 10, into chapter 11, <laughs> book of Romans. Matthew chapter 22 in verse 1, the Lord's been interacting with the chief priests and with the Pharisees. The Lord's just told them the parable of the wicked vine dressers, and the Pharisees perceive that he's talking about them, rightfully so. And what's their response? They want to lay hands on him. They want to kill him. But at this point, they're still fearful of the crowds, and so Jesus tells them another parable, one just as scathing. Verse 1, Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables, and he said to them, verse 2, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. He sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. And those invited to the wedding, they were not willing to come. So think with me. The Lord sends out his prophets to the nation of Israel. He rises early to send to them. They reject their king 
and they reject his son whom they have sent, and so they reject his gracious invitation to join them at the wedding, to join them at the wedding feast, right? This rejection is meant to be shocking. It's a staggering rejection. This is an invitation from their king. The royal son is to be married. There's going to be a great feast. In other words, this is cold-blooded. This is heartless. This shows contempt for the king, contempt for his son, contempt for the wedding. Now notice the emphasis of verse 3. It's not simply that they cannot come or that they are merely unable to come. I'm hindered from coming. I cannot, I'm incapable of coming. No, it says that they will not come. They are not willing to come. This is not a, a case for freedom of their will, but rather this is a case for the bondage of their will to the pervasive effects of their sin nature. Do you see? That sinful man is unwilling to come does not indicate or suggest that he has a will that is free to come. It further suggests that his own will is so in bondage to his sin, he can't even generate the desire to come. Doesn't want to come, is unwilling to come. We misunderstand free will all the time. Men act free. We're not puppets, you know, uh, or robots that were controlled. You, you have, you make decisions all the time. You made the decision to come here this morning. You made the decision to sit where you're sitting. You made the decision to wear what you're wearing. You made the decision to eat what you ate. We make decisions all the time. Our decisions are not free. Your decisions, born in Adam, are subject to a slavish bondage to corruption. And the only way that you can be set free from that slavish bondage is through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and God doing a work in your heart to free you. That's freedom. The king is taken aback. Rightfully so. He's been incredibly patient. He's been incredibly gracious. So, verse 4, again, again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, fatted cattle are killed. All things are ready. Come to the wedding. Look at all that I've done. It's going to be a great feast. Come, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. Let your soul delight itself in abundance. Here, your soul shall live. But, verse 5, they made light of it and went their ways. One to his own farm, another to his business. Far worse than a mere rejection, they couldn't possibly care less. This is no big deal. They've got their own lives to be concerned about. No time whatsoever for the king or his business. The rest, they actively despised the king. Openly hostile, verse 6. And they seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. When the king heard about it, he was furious. And that fury, that wrath, expressed through retributive justice. He sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. That will be the end of all those who reject the king's summons, do you see? Then he said to his servants, verse 8, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, as many as you find, invite to the wedding. Not only of the Jews, but also of the Gentiles, so to speak. Those outside of town, invite them in also. Verse 10, so the servants went out into the highways, gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. When the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. 
So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? Someone has snuck into the feast, right? Come over the wall like a thief or a robber. How did you get in here, the Lord asks. The king asks, how is it that you have presumed to come to me dressed in anything but that which the son has provided? You're not wearing a wedding garment. The only acceptable dress is to be clothed in his wedding garment, his righteousness. The king was insulted. He was speechless. His mouth stopped for a while. There's this guilty silence on the part of the guilty sinner here, verse 13. And so the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Four, verse 14, many are called, but few are chosen. Under the universal or general call of the gospel, many, many, many are called. Many called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Many called to the feast. We call here every week, (laughs) but only a few will properly respond. Only a few will come. Why is it that they come? Verse 14, in the language of verse 14, they were chosen. For many are called to salvation through the universal preaching of the gospel, but, verse 14, few are chosen to salvation through the particular electing purpose of God, through the particular call, effectual call of God. Those who come, those few who come, are those who are the called ones of God, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Why is it that some are willing to come? Who causes them to differ from all of those others who are unwilling to come? In the words of the hymn, why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room? Do you hear the passivity in that? Why was I made to hear thy voice and to enter while there's room, when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. Do you hear free will in that? They make a wretched choice. Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. When called by God, the sinner comes. Otherwise, the sinner will never come. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Here in 1 Corinthians, we see the exact same usage of the term, uh, beginning in verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Paul is giving the reason here in this particular text. Paul is giving the reason why some people turn to Jesus Christ at the preaching of the gospel and why others do not turn to Jesus Christ at the preaching of the gospel. It's this text where Paul is explaining the issue that we're speaking of. Verse 18, because the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, and again, notice the the passive nature of that, to us who are being saved, present passive participle, It is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. You think you can understand without God's wisdom? No way. God's going to destroy man's foolhardy, ignorant, so-called wisdom. Where is the wise, verse 20? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, 
The world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. In other words, Paul is saying, when I preach the gospel to most Jews, it's a stumbling block to them. And Paul is saying, when I preach the gospel to most Greeks, they think it's foolishness. You and I could say the same. When we go out and we preach the gospel to most Gentiles in this area, they think it's foolishness. They think it's foolishness. Verse 24. But to those who are literally the called ones... (laughs) To those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks. In other words, there is a group of the called ones out of Jews and out of Greeks. When that group hears the gospel, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. To those who are the called ones, ethnic Jews ethnic Gentiles who are going to turn from sin to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, when they hear the gospel, the gospel is the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, those to whom God has effectually called to himself, those whom God has effectually called, to those in whom the Spirit is at work effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, such that they savingly believe in Jesus Christ, the gospel is acknowledged as the power of God and the wisdom of God. Everyone here who has turned from sin to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who has a heart, a renewed heart, who's been born again by his grace, you would attest to that fact, amen? It is the power of God. It is the wisdom of God. No matter what this world thinks is wisdom, they think this is foolishness. It's the power of God, the wisdom of God. Are those who see Christ crucified as a stumbling block, are they called by God? Through the general call of the gospel. God now calling all men everywhere to repent. These times of ignorance, he's overlooked. Now calls all men indiscriminately, all men without exception. Turn from your sin, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He calls all men to repent. But that's only the general call to those who see Christ crucified as a stumbling block. Here, Paul excludes them. They are excluded from that group of those who are effectually called and see the message of the cross as the power of God and the wisdom of God. The general call of the gospel goes out to all, but the effectual call, whereby a sinner is empowered or enabled to repent and believe, that call is for those who are foreknown, those who are predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, justified and eventually glorified. Back in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we know, verse 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. What is the identity of those who receive the blessing of God in verse 28? They're genuine believers. But it's, I think, necessary for us to understand that genuine believers are those who've been mercifully and graciously called by God to himself. Those who love God. Why is it that we love God? Because he first loved us. He first loved us through the gospel, demonstrating his own love toward us. In that while we were still rebellious 
hateful, despising, contemptuous sinners, Christ died for us. We love, we follow, because he called those effectually called by God, the called ones who are the called according to his purpose. The next on your notes, what is then the content of the blessing that they receive? What is the blessing that all believers can take encouragement and comfort from in verse 28? What is the nature of it? What is the scope of it? What is the content of it? What is the substance of it? That God himself, by his perfect providence, is working all things together for their good. And that with the, with the purpose or with the aim that they would be, that this group of called ones would be conformed to the image of his son. You want to hear more about that? You're going to have to come back next week. <laughs> We're going to address the doctrine of God's providence in part two, uh, if the Lord allows, next week. It's interesting. Paul opens up verse 28 by referring to this wondrous blessing as something that we know. Something that we know. We know. If you're in Christ, we know. In our groaning, in our weakness, in our distress, verse 26, we don't even know how to pray as we ought. We don't even know what we should pray for. In our weakness, we don't know much. But this we know. This we know. It's a matter of our faith, our trust in God that God is working even through the worst of my circumstances to do good to me. That God is continuously and constant and steadfast in doing good to me. I know it because of his word to me. His promises can never be thwarted. He is the God who cannot lie. He cannot deny himself. He will be faithful to every word that he has spoken to you and I. Every word, he'll be faithful but we know it, brothers and sisters, because he has already proven his commitment to my good. He's already proven his commitment to your good by sending his own son to die for you. He is working all things together for your good because he has proven his unwavering commitment to that end by doing the greatest thing that is necessary for our salvation, the greatest thing that he could do, the greatest act of his grace, he sent his own son to die for you. Romans chapter eight, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not then with him freely give us all things? Freely work all things together for our good. How will he not do it? He has given us his son. This comfort, in your difficulty, in your trials, in the circumstances that you face, that comfort, that encouragement is the privilege of every Christian. And it's not empty, is it? It's not empty. It's not, oh, God's working everything for your good. You know, Having a hard day? Get over it. God's working everything for your good. It's not light. It's not meaningless. It is weighty. It is substantial. It's there to get us through difficult times. We're to turn to God in faith, turn to the Lord in faith, but listen, that comfort will only be fully enjoyed, fully experienced by those assured of the genuineness of their faith. That's why Peter says, 
be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. Make your calling, those who are the called ones, make your calling, make your election sure. How do you do that? Well, Peter says, give even more diligence and add to your faith virtue. Add to your virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. All comes back full circle, right? Make your calling and election sure. If you're outside of Jesus Christ, nothing is working towards your good. In fact, everything, though you enjoy the, the, the common grace that God has graciously bestowed upon all of his creation, and frankly, the common grace that God now bestows on all of creation is really essentially for the purpose of bringing in the last of his elect. <laughs> he is awaiting the full number, the full number of the called ones that he may reveal the sons of God, sons of glory at the end of the age at the return of Jesus Christ. We're waiting on that, whoever that last one is going to be when, when their number is complete. That's the reason for his patience right now, not willing that any should perish, but that all of them should come to repentance. But while you enjoy his common grace, know that that's not working for you good. Day by day, you are simply treasuring up more and more wrath for the day of wrath. Turn from your sin and put your trust in Jesus Christ. The opposite then is true for you. It's not going to terminate in anything good for you. It's going to terminate in eternal terror. Turn to Christ and end your hostility against him. Brothers and sisters, let's live in light of this promise together, shall we? Uh, putting our head down, laboring for the Lord in this life, knowing that all of this terminates in good for us and to the glory of his grace because of what Jesus Christ has done. Amen? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord. Thank you for this precious text. Um, thank you for all of the, just the, the grand and glorious theology that undergirds this truth. Um, these things are not just empty or vacuous or unsupported, Lord, but there is infinite wisdom uh, at work through the gospel. And we acknowledge your wisdom in it. We acknowledge your power in it. And Lord, we acknowledge your grace and mercy in it. And thank you, God, that we've been made to be beneficiaries of it. That you have called us out of sin and darkness, called, of, called us out of our bondage, called us out of corruption. And you have effectually called us to yourself, whereby we, with the new heart that you gave us, by the strength of your spirit within us, and by a renewed nature, renewed mind within us, are able to turn in faith to Christ and be saved. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. It is all according to your grace, and we praise you and thank you for that. Otherwise, we'd be doomed. Be with us, Lord, now as we live for you. Help us, Lord, to be mindful of these things, that we may hide them in our hearts, that we might not sin against you, and we might live steadfast until the end. Uh, and you, you preserving us uh, such that, um, Lord, when Jesus Christ comes back, we'll see him as he is and we'll become like him according to your purpose, according to your own will. And we pray these things for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.